Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to 1 Peter. As Ron said earlier in the service, today we begin a new series in the New Testament book of 1 Peter. It's almost toward the end of your Bible if you're not familiar with where it is. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are still some Bibles around here on the wood half walls there. Grab one of those if you would. We're going to be in 1 Peter and we're going to be looking at a lot of verses today. And so I'd encourage you, grab a Bible, get to 1 Peter, and throughout this message, be looking down as much as you're looking up. Now, in upcoming weeks, we'll take a handful of verses per week in 1 Peter, and we'll slowly and progressively work through this book. But today, I'd like to explore the big picture, the the message of 1 Peter. Both perspectives are very important. God's word is inspired down to very words, and so it's important for us to, at times, talk about a preposition, right, to talk about a conjunction, to notice words going next to certain words and how things are modified or explained. It's good to get out the magnifying glass, and we do that on a lot of Sundays. But we can't miss the forest for the trees. It'd be easy to spend many weeks in the book of First Peter, verse by verse, few verses at a time, and miss the overall message of it. And so we want to look at the forest of First Peter today. Peter tells us why he wrote this letter. It's not till the end of the letter, but there he tells us what he's been writing. Look at chapter 5, verse 12. He says this is by Silvanus, or might be Silas. Either way, it's the guy writing the words that Peter is probably speaking. He's Peter's secretary. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. He's talking about this letter. I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. I think Peter is saying that he wrote this letter with a twofold purpose. To explain what the true grace of God is. And then to encourage them, to exhort them to stand firm in that grace of God. Or really to tell them how to stand firm in that grace of God. But we can back up even further to the forest and get a broader view here. That's what 1 Peter is about. It doesn't tell us why he wrote those things though. It doesn't tell us why he wrote about the true grace of God in this exhortation to stand firm in it. There's always a backstory. There's always a context in which a text is written. So, for example, the book of Romans. The book of Romans is by the Apostle Paul, and it's really a doctrinal treatise. It's a full orb theology of salvation. But by the end of the book, you understand there's a backstory here. It's actually a support letter, it's Paul writing for missionary support. That doesn't mean the doctrinal stuff in the book of Romans is unimportant at all. It means that it's not just a bunch of detached, floating doctrine. It has a story to go along with it. There's a reason he wrote what he wrote. Or take, for example, the book of Philippians. That's also a support letter. But so much of the letter is about joy. You could say Philippians is about joy and joy in Christ. It is. 
But there's a reason Paul wrote what he wrote to the Philippians. He was in prison. They had sent support to him. He's writing back to them to thank them for their support and to assure them that he's fine. He's not just fine while he's in prison. He's happy. He's joyful. He's an example of being joyful. Just as they've joined him in a partnership for the gospel, he's saying, join me in rejoicing in Christ and the gospel regardless of what's going around you, going on even if it's imprisonment. Well, First Peter, there's a backstory as well. Here's the backstory. I'll tell you it now, and then we'll more slowly and more carefully see it play out in the book in the rest of our time together this morning. The backstory is found in chapter 4, verse 12. Look there. Chapter 4, verse 12, there he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's clear from the rest of the book the fiery trial had already happened. He wasn't talking about something in the future. The fiery trial was persecution. Persecution. Apparently they were surprised, even thinking it strange that they were suffering persecution. Some apparently shaken in their faith about this. They became Christians. They embraced all the good news promises that are in Jesus. They joined with the Jesus followers. All was good in the world, so it seemed. But then friends mock you. You're ostracized from your family. You're something of a social outcast. You're even excluded from trading guilds. Trading guilds? What are those, you ask? Well, Greg Beale, a New Testament scholar, tells us about these trading guilds in the Roman world. And no doubt this was part of the persecution that these, to whom Peter writes, were facing. Beale says there was a guild for almost every trade. And most people involved in any economic activity belonged to, belong to one guild or another. Something like unions, perhaps. But unions for buying and selling and trading, not unions for working like we know today. Maybe something like a very official uh, co-ops. Beale says since all the guilds had patron deities... Christian guild members would still be expected to pay homage to pagan gods at official guild meetings, which were usually festive occasions often accompanied with gross immoral behavior. Non-participation would lead to economic ostracism. And there isn't an alternative. This is how you get food. This is how you get clothes. This is how you get your stuff. That's what they're facing And even worse. So maybe the people to whom Peter wrote began to wonder as they're facing this. What's going on here? Why isn't the world around us embracing this message that we love and believe to be true? Why aren't they embracing us but instead rejecting us? Have we done something wrong here? Are we getting this thing of the Christian life wrong? That's the problem that Peter is writing to address. In short, the issues are... What can Christians expect for the Christian life? And how do Christians relate to the world around them? 
he writes this letter to help them recalibrate expectations. And according to 1 Peter, the answer to these kinds of questions, what can I expect and how do I relate to the world around me? The answer to these kinds of questions is in the gospel itself, Peter says. And that's why he writes this letter to declare the true grace of God and to exhort them to stand firm in it. So let me unpack that four different ways. That's our outline. Four different ways we can unpack this key verse of chapter 5, verse 12, about the true grace of God, what it is, and standing firm in it. The first, how God's grace comes to us. Let's think about how God's grace comes to us. And let's start at the beginning of 1 Peter and just see. Look down in your Bibles as I point out verses and phrases. Not so much whole verses, but let me paraphrase and point out key words as you look down in your Bible and see these words. What is God's grace and how does it come to us? Chapter 1, verse 3, God's grace is a living hope. It's a living hope which is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it's both his dying and his rising that gives us this living hope. In verse 5, that's just called salvation. The result, salvation. And that's ours when it's received, it says, through faith, verse 5. Now look down at a, a section, verses 10 to 12. And here we see that salvation comes to us in this person, Jesus Christ. It says in verse 10, the prophets of the Old Testament, they prophesied about the realization of this grace that was to come. Verse 11 tells us that it was the Christ or the Messiah that they prophesied of. They predicted, it says, his sufferings and subsequent glories. This was all in the prophets. Oh, it was sort of mixed here and there, sometimes convoluted. You have to piece it together now that we know more than they did back then. But it's all there. But now that he has come and he died and he was raised, verse 12, it's good news that has to be announced in the world. And Peter says, this good news has been announced to you. And it's only good news to those who recognize their need for this good news. So in verse 18, Peter talks about being ransomed from our old, futile, sinful way. We are all born, some looking cleaner than others, all born in this broken, crooked, messed up rebellion, an old, futile, sinful way. In verse 22, Jesus died to pay for our sins. It says there, to purify our souls, implying that we need purification. The gospel is good news and only makes sense for those who know their need. Let me point out a couple of other ways of putting it. We sometimes refer to gospel nuggets around here. Let me show you some gospel nuggets in 1 Peter. Look at chapter 2. And by the way, when I say gospel nugget, here's my definition. I think this is something I came up with. I don't think I've heard anyone say this before, but gospel nuggets are something we talk about here. I've encouraged us to think about. A gospel nugget is a verse that has enough gospel information in it 
that someone can get saved simply by reading that and that alone. So there are other good verses. Those are called good nuggets. They're not gospel nuggets. There are plenty of good verses about Jesus or what he did or, 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 or what's ours. But gospel nuggets have the main elements of sin and substitution and the result of salvation. So let me show you. Chapter 2, verse 24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree or the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's a gospel nugget. In chapter 3, verse 18, you see another one. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's a gospel nugget. These things are worth memorizing. These things are worth rehearsing over and over to ourselves, to our kids, to anyone who will listen. That's what the true grace of God is. It's in Jesus Christ, the promised one. It's in his righteous life and his sacrificial death as a payment for our sins. It's for sinners, not for the righteous. It's by grace alone. It's received through faith alone, not by works. It's trust. It's rest. It's abandoning all forms of self-salvation and self-righteousness. And it results in forgiveness and reconciliation to God. That's why Jesus suffered. It's important that Peter explains to those who are suffering. That's why Jesus suffered. They had heard this. They embraced it. And Peter wants to remind them of this salvation. But he also wants to go further than what I've said so far. He wants to raise their expectations beyond beyond this. I mean, he said that their salvation... He said that there's forgiveness. He's told us how there is salvation and forgiveness. But now he launches into some high and lofty language to describe what it means or how it what the results are for us. That's the second second thing. What God's grace means for us. The first was how God's grace comes to us. Now let's talk about what God's grace means for us or what the results are, what the implications are of this true grace of God. Let's take another run through the book. Go back to chapter 1. Let's look for results and implications. How lofty and high does this thing get? Well, chapter 1, verse 4 We Christians have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And, verse 5, will be guarded by God's power, not our own. We're kept by God and by his power. And then you remember that section, verses 10 to 12, about the prophets? Let me paraphrase that as you look down. What's it saying here? God's redemptive plan has finally been revealed to us. The thing that prophets of old in heaven's angels for Eons and eons longed to look into, longed to understand better. These things are now understood and have been simply handed to us. They've been announced. 
We live in an unprecedentedly privileged time in salvation history. That the gospel is known and it comes to us. Jesus, by name, is the gospel. And we've been told, like those to whom Peter wrote, they've been told, we've been told. There are others even today in this world that don't have the gospel accessible to them. It's not known in their land or among their people. Not so with us. One result, verse 17, is that the judge of the universe is now our father. The judge is our father. That's amazing. That's great. Go to chapter 2. Verse 4 says, we have come to him. We've come to him. Not that we got something from him, but we have come to him. He's brought us to himself, we saw in chapter 3, verse 18. In chapter 2, verse 5, we get this great promise that he's building us Christians together into a spiritual house or a temple for the, the presence of God and for his worship. We're now priests and priestesses doing spiritual work in our daily lives. Verse 6 says we won't be put to shame. Verse 9 says we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Even we Gentiles, we are now his people, God's people, verse 10. Jesus died so that we would live, verse 24, and truly live, live eternally, live abundantly. By his wounds, we've been healed. Go to chapter 3, verse 6. There you see Sarah in the Old Testament, the wife of Abraham, as an example. I love this wording in verse 6 where there it says, We do not have to fear anything that is frightening. There are things that are frightening, Peter admits. We don't have to fear them. Why? Verse 22, Jesus is already ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of God, and he now rules over angels and authorities and powers, and hence everything else that's lower, governments and people, in-laws, whatever. Chapter 4, verse 2, we now no longer live bound by our old, sinful, human passions. We now live for the will of God. And we're not alone in that. He's given us, verse 8, he's given us the church and a Christ-like mutual exchange of forgiveness and love and care among the brethren. He gives ongoing strength, verse 11, for us to serve each other. So in short, we're blessed. We're blessed. Chapter 5, verse 7, we don't have any reason to be anxious anymore. Because he cares for us, we can cast our cares on him. And verse 10 tells us that he will bring us to his eternal glory, and he will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. And how do you respond to unblushing promises like these? Well, back in chapter 1, verse 8, we love him. We love him. Even though we don't now see him, we love him. And we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. You see that in verse 8? 
Go back. Chapter 1, verse 8. This is one worth underlining or meditating upon. Let it blow your mind. He says we rejoice. That's a layer. That's pretty good. Rejoice. Yeah, be happy. Rejoice with joy. Well, isn't rejoicing already joy? Yeah, but heap it up, man. Pile it on. Rejoice with joy. Tell me about it. I can't. It's inexpressible. Words would not do. It will blow your mind, literally. It's filled with glory. Wow. That's some lofty stuff, isn't it? This is what the gospel means for us. But, I mean, is it too lofty? I mean, this isn't just cloud nine. This is cloud ten. Is this the kind of stuff, though, that leads to people being disillusioned with the Christian life. I mean, if they bought in with this stuff and had a bad month, they'd begin to think it's a sham. It doesn't pan out. I mean, because we, we know reality. It isn't cloud 10. I mean, the Broncos lost. <laughs> the Packers lost. What's going on? This world is turned upside down. The Patriots may lose today. Who knows? We don't get along like we should. There's tension. There's worries. Yeah, we don't have any reason to be anxious, but we are. We have no reason to be in disharmony, but we, we are. We have no reason to doubt, but we do. That leads to the third thing. Why we need to stand firm in God's grace. You see, if we have so much in Christ, if it's so sure, if it's completely ours, if the work is finished, if it's outside of us that this hope lies, then why this exhortation to stand firm in God's grace? And one answer according to 1 Peter is that because we're not given all of that at once, all the stuff I just listed, those those superlatives, that lofty language that's in First Peter, we're not given all of those things at once. And up front, Christians are people between two worlds. They have one, for, one foot planted in this dirty earth. And somehow they've got a foot planted in a heavenly kingdom. And that's how the letter begins, actually. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. There, Peter addresses those to whom he's writing like this. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then he lists some places, some cities. Elect exiles of the dispersion. That means the saved and dispersed spread out exiles. Exile is the key word there, at least for our purposes right now. Some translations have aliens. Some have strangers. In verse 17, you see the same word again. Chapter 1, verse 17, there he says, the rest of our lives can simply be called the time of your exile. Christian life is an exile. Or in chapter 2, verse 11, there he appeals to them as sojourners and exiles. Now, what's he saying here? They're not political exiles. This is not a geographic exile. 
It's going back to biblical language, biblical stories, right? It should remind us of the exile, the time of the prophets, where God's people were removed from Jerusalem and taken in captivity to Babylon. They were aliens and strangers. They were exiles. They were in a foreign land. We Christians were born here. And yet, in a sense, we're not of here. We're sojourners. Sort of like Abraham leaving Ur of the Chaldees for another land because God called him. And Hebrews tells us that he went out not knowing where he was going. But he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He was a sojourner. He left home to go to a place where God was calling him, not exactly knowing where it would be and when it would come. Like Moses in the wilderness with the Israelites after Egypt. They've been rescued from the bondage and tyranny and slavery of Egypt. That's good. But they're not yet to the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land of God's blessing and presence. They're somewhere in between. Sojourners. We Christians are too. We Christians are still in the world, Jesus said. But we're not of the world. In Colossians 3, Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, every Christian has, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on things above where Christ is already, not on things in the earth. And he says in Philippians 3 that our citizenship's already there. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we wait for a savior. Christ the Lord. Our citizenship is in heaven. Paul wrote that to Philippians. Philippians who were Roman citizens. Philippi was like a a posh suburb of the Roman world where well-to-do military generals retired. I mean, if there's any place that's really proud of their citizenship, it would be a place like Philippi. And Paul says, hey, Roman citizens, our citizenship is in heaven. Americans, our citizenship is in heaven. We're sojourners. We're going there. This isn't the end. We're not home yet. We're between two worlds. Now, one more. Let me go back to chapter 1 and see how this plays out in 1 Peter. Again, let's do the same thing. You look down on your Bibles, and I'll say phrases from certain verses that help us see how there's a not yet dimension to all that lofty stuff that Peter's already told us about. You see, in verse 4, our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. It's ours, but it's sitting there, and we don't have it fully experienced just yet. In verse 5, our salvation is guarded by God's power. That's great. That's a promise. We need that, but it won't be fully revealed until the last time. You see that? So much of what Peter writes is about the end, the consummation. Keep your eyes fixed on the horizon of his coming and him making all things new eventually. In verse 7, until then, it's necessary that we're grieved by various trials. That's part of the testing of our faith. And it won't 
fully result in praise and glory until the revelation of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good, it isn't, isn't something you can bank on for next Tuesday. We don't know when it will work for good or how it will work for good or whether you'll even sense that it worked for good in the here and now. You see, there's something of a heavenly horizon set before them. We have hope in grace right now. Verse 13, but we're still called to set our hope more fully on the final grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus. And that's not easy to set your hope fully on Jesus' return. It's a battle. It's a, a mental battle. That's why he says in the same verse, gird up your minds ready for a mental battle. Be serious or sober-minded. In chapter 2, we already saw he, he's building us together for a spiritual house, a temple for his presence. The church is great. And yet it often feels very earthly. She has her warts. We don't love like we should. We don't get along like we should. And as good as this building of a spiritual house for God's presence is, a building of people, what did he say before that? Verse 1 of chapter 2, we have to keep putting away, burying, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. All that's part of our old self, but the old self dies a slow death, and so its creepy, ugly hand keeps reaching out from the grave and grabbing our heels. That's inside the community of faith. Outside it, it means if we're exiles and sojourners, we're outsiders. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through, the old spiritual says. And if we're outsiders, that means that there's going to be opposition. Jesus came to this world. He gave us the gospel. And he called us to go into the world to represent him and the gospel to the world, to be his ambassadors. And yet he also told us that some would believe and many would not. He said many a time to his disciples, the world would hate them. Hate them. Like Mark 13, the world will hate you because of me, but stand firm, he says. In 1 Peter, we see suffering and persecution all over the place. The suffering in 1 Peter is a suffering of persecution. It's a suffering by the world. Thirteen times in 1 Peter, we find a form of the word suffer. It's not in part of 1 Peter. It's all over. It's in every chapter. And it's not just the word suffer or suffering or suffered. Other words are scattered throughout. These people have been grieved. They've been spoken against. They've endured sorrows. They've been beaten. They've been reviled, harmed, slandered, maligned, insulted. In short, they were facing a fiery trial. It's a dangerous thing to think that trials and suffering are surprising and strange things. Jesus warned us, in this world you will have tribulation. Paul said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said in John 15, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. So Jesus' suffering is not just our salvation, it's also an example. And that's what Peter deals with in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. Here he says, For to this you have been called. Called to what? Well, to do good, to suffer for doing good, and to endure the suffering. You've been called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is not just our savior, but he's our example. And not just our example in holiness, doing good, teaching good things, loving the poor. Jesus is also our example in enduring suffering in facing a world that opposes and resists. So Peter says in chapter 3, don't fear them. Jesus didn't, don't fear them. Instead, he says in verse 15 of chapter 3, tell them of the hope that is in you, and yet do it not smugly, but do it with gentleness and respect. Don't be surprised when you're few in number. He uses the example of Noah in chapter 3. God saved Noah when they were few in number and the whole world around him mocked. Don't be surprised. Don't conform. Don't go back to your old, futile, sinful self that he's rescued you from. And for the world's sake, don't go back. Look at chapter 4, verse 2. He tells us here, our conduct as Christians, our holiness is to be mindful of those around us. Here he says, verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. They malign you. They oppose you. They can't believe that you don't do what you used to do. You're different now. But don't be surprised. Rejoice. He says in verse 13, the same chapter, rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Suffering as a Christian for the name of Christ shows that that name is something we wear truly. It's part of your testing. Now, I know that Christianity in Rome in the first century is a totally different dog than 21st century American Christianity. We have some freedoms here that they just didn't have. They face persecution in ways that we just don't. You, you, can't, you don't have to worry about whether you'll get food because you're a Christian. 
And they did in those days. You don't have to worry about whether you're going to get burned alive here in the States. And they did in those days. But we know that that isn't the case in other parts of our country today. And we should also know that there are forms of persecution or being ostracized even today in America for being a Christian. We'll talk about those more as we deal with the different passages and suffering in the weeks to come. But here's the point for today. Regardless of how different the suffering was from Peter's day to our own, the question of how we relate to the world is as relevant today as ever. It's as relevant today as ever. And there are all kinds of different proposals, bad proposals for how we should relate to the world as Christians. I was thinking about it again this week and several F's came to mind about wrong approaches to relating to the world. Some Christians want to fight the world. An us versus them mentality. Mock them, right? Be snooty, condescending, them, right? Force them to do things our way. Get the power, take the reins, make them do what we do. Follow the world. Some Christians just follow the world. That's the easiest path. Just conform, just go their way, just assimilate, just be like them. Some want to flee from the world. That's an easier one still, perhaps, to retreat, to hide, to try to live in a Christian bubble, to make sure you have a Christian barber and a Christian mechanic, and, oh, if there's a Christian bank, sign me up. And if we can make a little Disneyland village where we all live in a Christian perfect world, then great, let's do that. That's not what God wants. Neither does he want us to faint from weariness and exasperation about how hard it is to be a Christian in the world. But we Christians are not called to fight or force or to follow or to flee or to faint, but to be steady and faithful. And by faithful, I mean be holy, be different, be otherworldly, be happy, be sacrificial, be loving. Don't return evil for evil. When reviled, don't revile, but bless. That's what Jesus did. That's the Jesus model. And perhaps one day they will see your good deeds and glorify God. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, As I said before, we need to stand firm in the true gospel in part for the world's sake. So they see there's something different here. And Peter gets very specific about what that might look like. He says, be a respectful citizen. Chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, he gives five verses about how to be a respectful citizen as a Christian. He says, submit to the government. Show honor even to the emperor even a persecuting emperor. Be a good, honest, hard-working employee, he says in verse 18 of chapter 2. Even if you have a jerk for a boss, work hard, show him honor, and do it to the Lord. That'll stand out. You, you want to stand out? Be a good, sweet, godly wife, even if you have a bad, ungodly wife 
husband. You want to stand out and be otherworldly? Believe in something called submission and headship and honoring husbands and husbands honoring wives. That's what verse 7 says of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, talked about the godly wife. By chapter 3, verse 7, he deals with the husband. Just briefly, be a good husband showing your wife honor. And then in the next verse, he says, be a good church member. Get along with other Christians. Verse 8, be humble and tender-hearted and quick to forgive. Be a community that's otherworldly. Don't be petty. Don't be hurt. Don't revile. Don't harbor bitterness. Be a different kind of community. Chapter 4 deals with this at length. Verse 8, keep loving one another earnestly, Peter says. He says in verse 11, some are going to speak truth. That'll be their thing. The body will operate, each having their own gifts, doing different things. Those who serve, let them serve and serve beyond their natural strength to serve in the strength that God supplies so that he gets the glory. That's the church. And by the time you get to chapter 5, verse 1, there's still one more. He says, you want to be otherworldly and you want to be the church and the church to the world? Follow the lead of the shepherds the pastors, the elders of your church. Follow them, trust them, show them honor, and follow their example. This is why Peter was written, to help them deal with suffering and persecution, to recalibrate their expectations. He doesn't just tell them why they need to stand firm in God's grace, though. He also shows them how we stand firm in God's grace. That's the fourth thing, how we stand firm in God's grace. And the how really is recalibrate your expectations. In 1998, my wife was pregnant with our first child. She was reading that book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. I'm sure that book sells by the millions just by the title, right? Because they want to know, women want to know, what's it like? What do I expect? I hear now that what to expect when you're expecting is uh, a book not loved by all new moms because there's some heavy negativity about it. There's a a lot of warnings. It's going to be this or it can be this and it gives you every possible thing that can go wrong. And it's nice to have a full-orbed picture of what you can expect, but some think that the tenor of it is generally a little too negative. So that's what my wife was reading before our first child was born. and Maybe that influenced some things. We got there to the hospital, and at one point she grabbed my shirt and yelled, I don't want to have a baby. I want to go home now. Let's not do this. <laughs> and I think she was serious. And I, I said, I don't think we can do that. Uh, but it, here we are. Well, before the second child was born, she ran, uh, ran across another book. And, and I don't recommend it because you'll, you'll read it and think it's really weird. It is. It's a hippie book called Spiritual Midwifery. Anyone read that? It's the other end of the spectrum. I mean, it doesn't think anything is going to go wrong. And, you know, you can just tell. They just did a lot of pot before they wrote this book. And 
you know. They live on a commune in a farm somewhere, and all they do is make babies, you know. The author calls your baby your monkey. Your monkey will know what to do. What? The monkey doesn't know what to do, I'll tell you that. But the second birth went way better. The second birth was, was great. I think it's because my wife had the facts and she had this vision of what it could be. I don't know. I don't know how it happens or how it went well. But she would say that it was much better and, and we're thankful for that by God's grace. But the point is this. Sometimes we have wrong expectations, too high expectations over here, too low of expectations over there. We Christians have to recalibrate our expectations often. So don't think too little of what you have in Christ. Don't think it's light to be forgiven by his blood, to be rescued from hell and eternal wrath. Don't think too little of what you have in Christ. Don't think too little of the otherworldliness of our message, our beliefs, and the lives that he calls us to. Don't think too little of the command, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Don't think too much of the world and what it has to offer in its judgment of you. Don't think too much of what they say and what they say they can do. Don't think too much of what the government can do. Don't miss that this is a pilgrimage. We're outsiders. We've been exiled. We're out on a post. We have an assignment. But don't think too little of what awaits us on the other side. Don't underestimate what we have now, but don't overestimate what we have now. Some things are for now, and some things are not yet, and it's so important that we get that straight. Jesus himself, suffering, then glories to follow. We tend to think it should be a eh, touch of suffering, mostly glories, and then more glories later. But we follow Jesus. We follow a homeless guy. We follow an outcast. We follow one who was crucified. We follow one who was reviled and yet opened not his mouth. Here's how we recalibrate expectations. We think much on the salvation that we've been given with detail in, in wording, not just that we're forgiven or we're going to heaven and that's that, or we believe the gospel and it's good news, but to get specific like Peter gets specific about the mind-blowing reality that we weren't purchased with gold or silver and things that perish. We were purchased with the precious blood of a spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. We look forward to the glories that await and we embrace our identity as exiles and sojourners. We revel in all that is ours and all that will be ours. 
I, I love that line in some Jack Nicholson movie. He goes into a psychiatrist's office. There's a bunch of sad people around. And he just wants to mess with them. He's a grumpy old man. He says, what if this is as good as it gets? That's depressing, right? You're there for help. You're hoping life's going to get better. You're hoping this doctor can fix you. What if this is as good as it gets? A psychiatrist's waiting room. We Christians, we don't have to say that. We don't have to wonder. This isn't as good as it gets. The best is yet to be. Just look at Christ. He died and he was raised. He's now exalted. Look at Christ's example of enduring, suffering, being faithful, loving, and looking to the reward. Oh, I know it's not easy to get our minds around that and live in that reality. That's why you drink from the word. 1 Peter 2.2 says, What milk is to newborn babies, that's what the Bible is for Christians. They need it. They need it. They need to pray. They need each other. They need to work at loving each other. And they need to love meeting together as living stones which make up a holy dwelling place for God. Maybe, just maybe, people around us will see that, that's unusual. What? Tell me more. Or you'll get a, an opportunity to talk, to testify of the hope that is within you. Do it with gentleness and patience. And trust God for the results. Only he can take this truth. Jesus dying in our place on a cross 2,000 years ago, being raised from the dead, literally, physically. Only that can become life-giving, worth-embracing, joy-giving. Only that is worthy of faith if God awakens hearts to see that it's true. So pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for those around you. Pray for your church. That's the message of 1 Peter.